Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. Next week is Resurrection Sunday and in preparation for uh, this memorial, an exciting time where we, re- we remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, we pause to consider the precursor to the resurrection this week and its importance. A resurrection is a rising again, chiefly... It's a revival of the dead back to life. This concept is far more than just a religious idea, far more than just a Christian theme. It is the very foundation upon which we build our lives. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just something that we do or something that we believe. It is everything to us. It is our hope. It is our future. It is our redemption. It is our justification. It is our sanctification. As we consider resurrection next week, though, we know that there can be no resurrection without there first being a death. Without a life first ceasing to be, it is not possible that it can recommence. And so next week we consider Christ's resurrection. This week I would like us to consider the suffering and the death that laid the foundation for the new life when Christ was raised from the dead. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 tells us this. He, Jesus, was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. The central teaching of the entire Scripture is this. God made man in His image and after His likeness. Man rebelled against God by seeking to usurp God's throne, claiming His own divinity, rejecting God as both Creator and Sovereign. Man thus invited sin into this world. And with that sin which man invited into this world came a separation from fellowship with our Creator. See, because a holy God cannot have a personal relationship with a sinful man. Adam's sin fundamentally changed the nature of every human so that now every child is born with a sin nature that directs him into willful, volitional rebellion against God. But God loves mankind. Mankind, which He created in His own image. Mankind, which He formed out of the dust of the ground and breathed into, his, um, breathed into Him the breath of life and, and man became a living soul. And from the very beginning of mankind's fall into sin, there was a promise that God Himself would personally redeem mankind from that sin and personally restore the relationship between God and man that mankind himself had forfeited. And this redemption was realized through a man named Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, 100% man, born of a woman, born under the law, but 100% God. 
He lived for 33 years and every one of those years was sinlessly perfect because He was God. Something no man could do, but Christ could do because He was not just a man. He was God in flesh. He lived this way so that He, as a perfect man, could become a perfect sacrifice and pay the sin debt that you and I had incurred but could never possibly pay ourselves. So He came to be the perfect sacrifice that you could not be. He came to pay the debt that you could not pay. And He did so when He died upon the cross. Delivered, Romans 4.25 told us, for our offenses. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus Christ is the theme. And the theme is pervasive. Redemption is everywhere. The Old Testament points up to the redemption of Christ. The New Testament points back to the redemption of Christ. To those three days where Jesus gave Himself to die and then was buried and rose again. And today I'd like us to look at one of those Old Testament pictures that points up to Christ. One of those Old Testament pictures, one of the clearest Old Testament pictures of Christ's death. Now, last week we saw what might be the clearest at, uh, possible. The Passover lamb. That God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood of an innocent lamb, a lamb being slain and his blood being used to cover the sins, to cover the transgressions of one who deserved his punishment. And this week, as we look at this second Old Testament picture, we turn to Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers 21, we find ourselves in the midst of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. The nation of Israel, in fact, had arrived at the promised land after leaving Egypt in just a matter of months. In just a matter of months, they were knocking on the door of Canaan. You say, well, pastor, what happened? How is it that they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness if in a matter of months they were at the doorstep to their home? Well, what happened is when they arrived at the promised land, they sent in some spies. Twelve of them to be exact. And those spies went and they scouted out the land and they came back and they said this to the nation of Israel. Ten of them said, well, they all said the land is beautiful. It's exactly what God promised. It's everything that we could hope for. It is indeed a land, as they said, flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's prosperous. It's fertile. It's beautiful. It'll be a great home. But then ten of them said, but there's a problem. There's giants in the land. The children of Anak are there. We can't, we can't defeat them. We need to come up with a plan B here. Because this land is going to be hard to take. They're walled villages. Walled cities. It's strong. The people have chariots. There's giants in the land. And two of those twelve spies said, that's right. It's all there for us. The houses are built. The walls are built. God said He'd drive them out. Let's go get it. That was Joshua and Caleb. The other ten said, no, no, no. We can't do that. We, we need a plan B. Joshua and Caleb said, no, 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 no. Trust the Lord. But the nation didn't believe Joshua and Caleb. The nation followed the ten. And the nation became discouraged. 
And they said, let's go back to Egypt. Why did you bring us up, Moses, just to have us die? Just to have us fall to our enemies? It was so much better in Egypt, Moses. Why are we here? They got discouraged. They complained. They wanted to go back to Egypt. God was not very happy with them. In his anger, he decreed in Numbers chapter 14 that not one person from that generation would enter into the promised land except for those two men, Joshua and Caleb, who exercised faith and called the people to enter into the land. God said, instead, you are going to wander in the wilderness until everyone from this generation dies and the next generation will enter the land because you did not believe me. Well, so much happened in Israel after they rejected the promised land. Chapter 16 tells us that a man named Korah, he was a Levite, and much of his family rebelled against Moses and Aaron as leaders, stating that every man should be a priest. Every man should be able to stand before God. So why do we need your leadership, Moses and Aaron? Why can't we be leaders? Why can't we stand before God in the temple? Why does Aaron have to be the high priest? Why can't we be high priests? And they rebelled against the leadership of these men who were following the Lord. And the Scriptures tell us that they assembled together on a day with censers in their hand to try to prove that they could be priests too. And the Scriptures tell us that on that day, the earth opened up and swallowed better than 250 of Korah and his family. And then others were killed with fire as the fire from the Lord went and destroyed them for their rebellion. Well, you'd think, okay, the, the, the earth just swallows Korah and his family. That fire destroys 250 men who had censors who were not qualified to be the high priest. This should be a pretty good sign that Israel needs to shape up. We find their response to be anything but. In response to this destruction of these rebellious men and women, the nation starts to complain, murmuring against God for killing the people of God. How could God do this? What a terrible God that would kill these men and women completely missing the fact that they had rebelled against God. And because of their murmuring, God brings a plague wherein 14,700 more Israelites are killed before Aaron the very one that they're complaining against gets a censor and intercedes on behalf of the people so that they would not be destroyed. In chapter 20, Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, dies and is buried. Immediately after her death and her burial, the people begin to murmur against God because they want water. We don't have any water. We want water. Where's the water? We should just be back in Egypt. So God says, okay, Moses, speak to the rock and it'll bring forth water. Well, Moses gets a little bit self-righteous here, self-justified, angry against the people. And instead of just speaking to the rock, he hits the rock and he says, bring forth water. And in doing so, he mars a picture of Jesus Christ that the Old Testament shows through that rock. The rock which never was to be smitten a second time. And for his rebellion, God says, Moses and Aaron, you both will not enter the promised land either. 
You did not justify me before the people. You have rebelled against my word. You will die in the wilderness as well. And the Scriptures tell us that immediately after that decree, Aaron went through the process of handing over his high priesthood to his son Eleazar. And then Aaron died. This is the backdrop for Numbers 21. This is the event of the last seven chapters of Scripture. Now Moses is standing before the people, leading the people through these wilderness wanderings. Aaron is not there anymore. His brother is dead. Miriam is not there anymore. His sister is dead. The people have rebelled time and again and have faced their, the, the, the recompense of their own rebellion. The people are discouraged. And that's what, where we find ourselves here. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. The Bible tells us that the nation journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea with the intent of avoiding conflict with the Edomites who were descendants of Esau, Israel's brother. And so God has them going in the opposite direction of the land. They're discouraged. And Israel's reaction to their discouragement was the same reaction that we've seen before in them and the same reaction that perhaps we are all too prone to have. In verse 5, notice what it says. The people spake against God and against Moses. You'd think by now they'd realize that this, nothing good is going to come of them speaking against God or God-ordained leadership. But they haven't figured that out yet. So the people spake against God. They spake against Moses. And this is what they said. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. They questioned Moses' leadership. They questioned God's goodness to them. They even became irrational in their complaints, stating that they have no bread, stating that they have no water. Well, God just provided for them a couple of chapters ago water out of a rock. And you want to talk about bread. Every morning they wake up, they open the tent flaps, and what do they find on the ground? Bread. Bread from heaven. And they, they acknowledge that, we see here. All we have is this light bread. That word light in the Hebrew literally meaning insubstantial. All we've got is this manna. And it isn't sufficient for us. This being the bread that appeared miraculously every morning. But hey, it's insufficient. This being the bread that Psalm 78 calls angel's food. But hey, it's insufficient. God's provision was insufficient. God's care for them was insufficient. God made His first mistake with them, right? God, You made Your first mistake when You brought us out of Egypt. You made Your first mistake when You gave us this insufficient bread. God, You're doing it wrong. We are the victims of Your errors, God. That's what Israel is saying here. Such was the foolishness of their cries in the midst of their discouragement. Such was their degree of discontentment that plagued their faithless hearts. They grew to despise what God had provided for them. The greatest irony of the situation is that had they trusted and obeyed God to begin with, they would have already been in the promised land. 
They would have already been sustained by the land itself. They would have already been at rest in their new homes. And now the consequences of their own sin have brought them to a place where they are continually having to eat this bread that the Lord has provided for them, where their, their people are dying and are going to die. They're not going to be able to enter the land. All of this, the consequences of their own sin. And they say, God, why are you doing this all to us? God, you're not taking care of us. God, what we have is insufficient. Somehow, the consequences of their own sin became God's fault. Somehow, the faithlessness of their own hearts became God's error. In some way, their hearts had forgotten that God's mercy had abounded toward them in almost every way. And they declared themselves to be negligent children of an unloving God. Can you believe that? Even as I preach that, I think of my own heart so often. We do this all too often ourselves. But that's not the point of the message today. Verse 6. God responds to their murmuring. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. God was angry at Israel for disdaining His goodness, for disdaining, for disesteeming His name, for rejecting His provision, and for blaming God for their own sinfulness. And so He sent among them what the Bible calls fiery serpents, which would bite the people and the people would die quite quickly. The idea of the serpents being called fiery uh, could be related to possibly one of two attributes or maybe both. First, it could be related to their appearance, that perhaps they took on a yellow or a copper color, the color perhaps of fire. It is also possible and probably more likely that this is a description of their bite, that when they were bitten, there would be a terrible burning pain that, would, that a man would feel as the poison of the serpent is injected into his flesh. Uh, for those of you that have ever been bitten by something poisonous, you know that there's a pain that is associated, typically a burning pain that's associated with that poison. Even, um, well, really anytime anything is injected into your body, there, there tends to be a little bit of pain as, as that's being injected. And venom is, is certainly even worse. And so that's, that's probably the idea of the fiery serpent. Could be either or, however. And regardless of, of, of what it exactly means that, that these were fiery serpents, what we do know is this. They bit the people and when you got bitten, you died. And so verse 7 says, The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the, the serpents from us. And Moses, in his meekness and in his humility, once again interceded for the people. Would you do that? If you were the leader that everybody kept speaking against and murmuring against and seeking to rebel against, and every single time they come back to you and say, you know, we've, we, we've sinned, would, would you intercede to God on our behalf? Would you say, no, get out of here? Or would you do what Moses did? Get down on his knees and say, God, save these people. So Moses intercedes on their behalf. The people discerned immediately that the serpents were a judgment from God. And this was God's promise to them that when they sinned nationally that God would send curses upon them. 
They declared in repentance that they had indeed sinned against God and sinned against Moses by uh, rejecting his authority, his God-ordained authority over them. They asked Moses to pray for mercy and Moses prayed. And verse 8 tells us this. The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. So God gives relief for the serpent. He commands that, or for the, for the bite, he commands that Moses make a fiery serpent, manufacture one, fabricate one, and to put it on a pole. Notice that God did not take away the serpents. He rather chose to make provision for them in the midst of the serpents to be saved from the death that the serpents caused. God commanded Moses to make this serpent. He doesn't necessarily say to make it out of brass, but one of the reasons why we think it might be a color thing is because he made it out of a metal that would shine. It's lifted up, and when the sun hits that brass serpent, it would, it would be very bright. And the Scriptures tell us that anyone in Israel who was bitten by the serpent, if they looked to that serpent that was on the pole, they would live and they would not die. Whoever would not look to that serpent would not look up at that pole when they were bitten would die. And so verse 9 tells us that it came to pass. Moses made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. He lived. If they looked, they would live. Now, at this point, I'd like to make three observations about what is happening here in this historical account of Israel's trial in the wilderness. First, we must remember that Israel's judgment was the consequence of their own sin against God. They were blaming God. They were saying God was the problem. God, it's your fault I'm in this situation. God, why aren't you giving me more? God, why aren't you providing? God, all we have is this insufficient light bread. But when, when we boil it down to what we know and what we understand and what God was making very clear to them, we see very clearly that it was their sin that brought these consequences. This wasn't God being mean wasn't God being angry? Wasn't Him being unreasonable? They weren't, Israel was not the victims here. They had time and again rebelled against the clear commands of God who ruled over them by right and by redemption. The fiery serpents were not about God being vindictive. They were about God being just. Second, we see that God's mercy upon the people of Israel when they cried out to Him for forgiveness did not consist of removing the presence of the serpents from among the people, but rather making provision for the people to be saved from the power of the serpent's sting. They still felt the sting of the bite. They still dealt with the pain, but they would be saved from the devastating effects of the poison. Israel repented of their sin when confronted with the consequences. And this is not uncommon within human nature that we oftentimes have to be brought to our knees, brought to a place where we rec finally recognize the consequences of our own poor choices before we're willing to truly repent of them. 
Oftentimes when my children do wrong, it's not until they face the consequences of their disobedience that they find a truly repentant heart, that they finally recognize exactly how wrong their actions were. But this is distinguished from the person who is just sorry because they got caught, right? There's a difference between being repentant, truly recognizing that what you did was wrong, or simply saying, well, I'm sorry that I got caught doing what was wrong. The repentant heart is the heart that says, I never want to do that again. The unrepentant heart is the one that says, man, I I got caught this time. What can I do next time so that I don't get caught? Well, God used chastening to get Israel to the place of repentance, and they were there. But God still desired to prove their faith and to prove their repentance as individuals with these serpents. And that's why He left them there. And that brings us to our third point. Third and finally, notice that God didn't give a blanket pass. It was not going to be, okay, any of you, uh, if, if uh, uh, there's a group of you that came up and asked for repentance, so the serpents are all gone. He didn't heal everyone who was bitten, but only those who exercised enough faith put their faith in God's provided salvation. God is a God of forgiveness and mercy. It is, it is a part of His very nature to be so. God wants men to come to Him willingly and humbly and seek His mercy. So instead of removing the serpents, the just consequence of their sinful rebellion, He made the provision for their salvation, then asked them to exercise their will, to exercise their volition in faith to receive the salvation that He had prepared for them. See, the Scriptures tell us that faith pleases God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. The solution was so simple. If you just look to the serpent, you will live. If you just cast your eyes on the serpent, you will live. But it still demanded that small kernel of faith that said, I believe God enough to turn my eyes to the serpent after I get bitten. Could you imagine the foolishness of one who is bitten but convinces himself that he's fine on his own and so he refuses to look at the serpent? He, he, he's bit by the serpent. Uh, it's hurting. He's on the ground. He's, he, he can feel the poison starting to work. He says, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I'm going to get through this. I don't, I don't need to look at the serpent. I'll be fine. Could you, how foolish. And all of his family around him says, what's it going to hurt? Just look at the serpent. And no, 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 no. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, 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 I'm healthy. I'm, I'll be fine. Could you imagine the foolishness of one who is bitten but denies that he's ever been bitten? The snake bites him. He's on the ground. He can hardly move. His leg's getting paralyzed. He says, no, no, I wasn't bitten. No, no, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need the serpent. I don't need to look at the serpent. I wasn't bitten by a snake. I'm okay here. And the family says, look, you've got the, you've got the two little marks. The serpent's there. He's running away. You, you've been bitten. No, 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 no. I'm okay. I wasn't bitten. No, no, no. It's just, this pain will go away. Just cramp. Just cramp. How foolish. But you know, it still took a little bit of faith, didn't it? 
It still took enough faith to say, if I do this, Christ will, or the, the serpent will save me. Getting ahead of myself. But that was God's standard. If you wanted to live, you didn't have to do anything. You just had to have enough humility before God and faith in God to turn your eyes and look at the serpent, to believe in His provision for your salvation, and you would live. Now let's put the link together. Please turn with me to John 3. Thus is the picture. It was indeed a historical account. It actually happened in Israel's history. The Bible does not lie to us. The Bible is not just allegory. The Bible is not just a bunch of good stories. The Bible is not moral manipulation. The Bible is history. The Bible is accurate on every point to which it speaks. Not just faith, but to every point, historically, scientifically, religiously, Spiritually, on every point that it touches, it is 100% accurate. And so we know it's, it was a, a real event, but it was also intended to be a picture. We said that all things in the Scriptures in the Old Testament point forward to Christ, and this is certainly one of them. In John 3, we are introduced to Jesus speaking to a man at night whose name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was convinced that Jesus Christ was from God. He'd seen his miracles and he says, I know that you are from God. However, for all that Nicodemus knew that Jesus was sent from God, he couldn't put Jesus into the box of who are you supposed to be? He didn't understand his teaching. Are you indeed the Messiah? And if so, why are you doing things so differently than what we expect our Messiah to do? Jesus is very patient with Nicodemus in this passage as He is with all men and women who are willing to genuinely seek Him. And He answers His questions. And in response to, G- to Nicodemus' declaration that Jesus is indeed from God, notice what Nicodemus, or Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that's kind of an interesting statement. Nicodemus says, I know that you're from God. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And notice Nicodemus' response in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Wait a minute. What do you mean be born again? Be born a second time? I mean, I'm pretty big now. I'm not going to fit in my mom. Can I climb back in and be born again? What are you talking about, Jesus? How is it that a man can be born, of the, uh, born again? And Jesus responds in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water being a flesh, a physical birth. The Spirit being a spiritual birth. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that, that, it's, uh, that water is, is the physical birth and Spirit is the spiritual birth? Because a lot of people will say, born of water, that means baptism. Born of the Spirit, that means spiritual. Why isn't this baptism? We'll take a look at verse 6. Jesus is painting this contrast, being born of water and born of the Spirit, and then He clarifies in verse 6, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is Spirit is Spirit. You see the parallel? Born of water, born of flesh, born of Spirit, born of Spirit. So the parallel is made there. Uh, Jesus Christ interprets His own saying for us. 
And so Jesus looks at him and says, look, Nicodemus, it's not enough to just be born a human. Not enough to be just born one time. You have to have a spiritual birth. You have a physical birth, but then there must be a rebirth. There must be a spiritual rebirth. You must be born again by the Spirit of God. And that is the message that he had for Nicodemus. And now look at verse 13. In verse 13, Jesus says, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Jesus states in verse 13 that his proper place is in heaven. His habitation is in heaven. Heaven is where he belongs. Heaven is where he came from. But he came down to earth as a man. He took upon himself uh, the, the form of a man. He took upon himself flesh to do something that no one else could do. He came down to pave the way for mankind to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He came to pave the way for men and women to be born again. And then notice what he says in verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here it is. Here's the link. It's about, I mean, it's, it's as clear as you can get, right? We see Jesus use the historical account of the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness as a picture of His task that God sent Him to do upon this earth. And He says that in the same way Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that anyone who turned their eyes toward it toward that brazen serpent in faith, believing that looking upon that brass serpent would indeed save them from the death sting of those fiery serpents. In that same way, so too, Jesus Christ must be lifted up above the earth, crucified for mankind for the purpose that whosoever would look to Him, whosoever would but look upon Him, whosoever would have enough faith to say, God tells me that if I repent from my dead works and I put my faith in God through Christ, if I will but do that, that I will be saved from the death spiral that I find myself in, from the sting of death that I can no way get out of, then I will be saved. Will not perish, but have eternal life. Pastor, what are you saying? Is that really what this means here? Is is Jesus really saying that lifted up is a reference to His crucifixion? Well, He is. So how do you know that? Well, for clarification, in John 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says this, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So when Jesus Christ says the Son of Man must be lifted up, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He clarifies in John 12 that when he talks about being lifted up, he is indeed declaring the manner of his own death that he would be nailed to a tree and that tree would be raised up. And as he was lifted up and gave up his life on that cross, we would be delivered from our offenses. So let's make the parallels clear here by modifying the three observations I've already made in Numbers 21 for John 3. Number one, 
Eternal separation from God in hell is the consequence of your sin against God. We talked before about the reality that it was Israel's own choices that brought them to the place of consequence, right? It was their own rebellion against God that brought them to a place where God sent the fiery serpents, sent the plague, swallowed some of them up in the earth. Uh, they all would die in the wilderness because of the consequences of their own sinfulness. Well, the Bible tells us that we are sinners. Sin is anything that we say. Sin is anything that we do. Sin is anything that we think that is contrary to the character, the will of the Word of God. If you've ever lied, then you have exercised your will in rebellion against God's character of truth. And so you are a sinner. If you have ever disobeyed your parents, you have exercised your will against God's commandment to honor your father and your mother. Therefore, you are a sinner. And you say, well, pastor, we've all done those things. Yes. We are all sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, for we are all as an unclean thing, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. All are unrighteous. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. And when we sin, we are separated from God because God cannot bear Sin, He is holy. And the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Sin is like that fiery serpent. You've been bitten. We have all been bitten. We have all sinned. We've all been bitten by the fiery serpent and now we have a big, big problem because the payment for sin, the wages of sin, the natural consequence of being bitten by the fiery serpent of sin is without fail death. Now when the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of two ideas. The first of course being physical death, that at one point all of us will die. Before sin, there was no death. Sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned, the scriptures tell us. So we are all uh, going to die, but there's something even, even bigger, something much, much, much worse. And that's spiritual death. And that is separation from God for eternity. The Bible tells us that the location of this eternal separation, as we've said, is a place called the lake of fire, a perpetual place of burning and of torment physically. But beyond just physical torment, it will be a place of spiritual torment because you will be separated from God forever. And Revelation 21.8 tells us, but the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Our sin has put us on the path to a place of eternal suffering and separation from God. You have been bitten by the fiery serpent of sin and the wages of sin is death. But Romans 6.23 actually doesn't end there. You maybe saw the ellipses. The second half of Romans 6.23 tells us this. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
God made a way for us to be saved from the death sting of the fiery serpent of sin. God has made provision for us to not have to die when we finally recognize our own sinfulness. And that way was purchased for you on the day when Jesus Christ, being sinless, submitting Himself to the Father, came in human form and was killed by sinful men. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus was lifted up above the ground, dying on the cross, that as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, God would make Him, Christ, to be sin for us. That God poured out all of the sin of mankind on Jesus Christ on that day and made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. It's the first time the Godhead had ever experienced what it is to bear sin. For He had known no sin. That we, you and I, might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus took your penalty, became your sin, so that you could be saved from your sin. And that brings us to our second point. First point, eternal separation from God in hell is the consequence of your sin against God. Point number two, God's mercy doesn't remove the presence of sin, folks, but makes provision for salvation from its power. God didn't take away the biting sting of death on the cross. Not yet. Not yet. There's coming a day when that will be removed. But not yet. But God did, through Christ, make provision for any and every man, any and every woman, any and every child to be saved from the power that sin has to cast us into hell or to dictate our life and actions. But God wants something from you first. It's not an action. He just wants your heart. God wants you to recognize first off that you have a problem, that you have a sin problem, that you have indeed been bitten by the death sting of sin. That you in no way can solve this problem on your own. And then God wants you to turn to Him in faith to save you Himself. God wants you to see your need, to see Him as the solution to your need, and then to turn to Him to meet that need. That brings us to point three. Point number one, eternal separation from God in hell is the consequence of your sin against God. Point number two, God's mercy doesn't remove the presence of sin, but makes provision for salvation from its power. Number three, God doesn't redeem every sinner but only those who exercise faith in His prescribed salvation. Though your sin debt has been paid in Christ, that doesn't mean it's yours yet. Jesus told Nicodemus, ye must be born again. He would go on to tell Nicodemus in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have ever lasting life. In other words, if you want to live, you need to do it God's way. You need to humble yourself before God and exercise faith to look to Jesus Christ. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to recognize that you're on your way to eternal separation from God in the place called the lake of fire. If an Israelite didn't think they had a problem, they would never look toward the solution. We talked already. If an Israelite gets bitten, he says, no, 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 I haven't been bit. I haven't been bit. I'm okay. 
and they live in a place of self-denial of their circumstances, then they're never going to look to the serpent because they don't believe they've been bit. If you don't believe that you're a sinner, if you don't believe that your sin has actually placed you in a direction of eternal punishment in hell, then you're never going to look to the solution. If you're living a life of self-denial saying, no, 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 I'm really, I'm okay here. I'm okay. Then you're never going to be looking for the solution because you don't think you have a problem. You need to recognize that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. There's no amount of good works that will get you to heaven or anyone. Did you notice how full that parking lot is? Lutheran Church today? It's Palm Sunday, right? That parking lot is full. Full of a lot of people who think that going to church twice a year is going to get them to heaven. Full of a lot of people who think that as long as they give a certain amount or as long as they got baptized as an infant or as long as they're still a member of their church that they're going to get to heaven. Full of a bunch of people that have never been born again. Parking lot's not going to be that full in two weeks. Wasn't that full last week. It won't be again until around Christmas time. A bunch of people who have, not all of them by the way, please don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying that this is the only church in town that's got it right. But we recognize a great number around here who are trusting in something, anything other than Christ to get them to heaven. They're good works. Perhaps church attendance. Giving to the poor and needy giving to a church, baptism, anything else that they think can save them from the bite of sin and it can't. Imagine one of those Israelites being bitten by the serpent and so they limp their way over to the tabernacle to, to, to give some money to the tabernacle. They limp their way over there with, with a lamb and they put their lamb on the altar and they try to sacrifice that lamb. But see, it's not going to work because that's not what God has prescribed. It's a part of serving Him to do those things, but it's not what will save you from the death sting of the fiery serpent. You need to look if you're going to live. If you're going to be saved from that bite, you must be saved God's way. We've contemplated already all of the different ways that an Israelite might foolishly refuse to look upon the serpent to be healed. They realize that they have been bitten and they say, well, maybe that bite's not too bad. I can deal with this problem tomorrow. I can figure this one out on my own. I'm really a very healthy person. Don't you think that my good health will outweigh the death bite of the serpent? I'm probably strong enough to overcome this. The Bible doesn't talk about people that were strong enough to overcome the serpent, the fiery serpent's bite. Didn't matter how healthy they were, they died. And we'd say, you fool, you're dying. You're dying and God has said how you can be saved from your death. Just do what God asks. Just look to the serpent that's on the pole and you will live. But I wonder if there's anyone under the sound of my voice today who knows you're a sinner. You're not, you're not pretending like you're not a sinner. You're not pretending like you weren't bitten. But you simply refuse to turn to Christ for salvation. You think your good will outweigh your bad on that day. That somehow you being a, a, a good person will, will mean that God can overlook the, the wrongs that you've done. Well, the Bible 
tells us that no amount of good works can save you from the poison that's inside you. No amount of washing of external washing of water can save you from the internal poison that's within you. No church can save you from the poison that's within you. But if we will do it God's way, looking to Jesus Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, the Scriptures say we will live. We will be born again. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, as God was trying to reason with Israel, He says this in, 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 in uh, that passage, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, red, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. God speaking to Israel on a national level, telling them that if they will but humble themselves before Him, that they will again see the blessing that can come from the physical land of Israel. We translate that into our own understanding spiritually. We don't, we, we don't pretend like God didn't say these words to Israel, but spiritually we recognize that the same concept exists that we have hearts that are stained with sin and the only way to have them washed clean is not by starting to do good things because doing good things cannot undo what has been done in our hearts, the, the wickedness of our hearts. But if we will turn to Christ, He will wash our heart and make us white as snow if we will but be willing and obedient. Today we consider the blessed salvation that is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Unlike the brazen serpent which was made of metal and placed on a pole and was eventually destroyed, Jesus was a man, human, slain to bear your sin. But Jesus promised in 12.32, John 12.32, excuse me, that if He would be lifted up, sacrificed upon the cross of Calvary, he would draw all men unto Him. And as we close today, I speak to two possible groups under the sound of my voice. And first and primarily, I do indeed speak to born-again believers for most of us are believers. And, and um, I'd like to speak to you first. You've recognized that you're a sinner and have already looked to the cross of Christ to save you you have experienced the reality of being born again. You have a new life in Christ. You understand the freedom from sin that overshadows your life upon this earth. Well, first off, may I just say this? You can submit yourself back to that sin again. Because you have been freed from sin does not mean that sin is not still around. Could you imagine one of those Israelites being bitten, looking to the serpent to live, praising God that he's been saved, that the poison did not have the effect, and he says, I'm going to go find a few more of those serpents to bite me. I'm going to go find another one of those. How silly. How silly to place yourself back under the pain of that poison simply because you know that you've got a provision. And Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How should we who have been saved from the sting of death 
that is rooted in our sinfulness, go back and submit ourselves to that sin once again. Go back and find more fiery serpents to bite us. And by the way, still reap the physical consequences of it. God may have saved us from hell, but He reserves the right not to save us from the poor from the consequences of our poor decisions. But also, all around you are men and women who are suffering through the sting of their own sinfulness. They're lying on the ground, dying a sinner's death. And right behind them is the cross upon which Jesus died. Shining as the solution to the death and suffering that they find themselves in. Now you can't save them. You can't save anyone. You can't cause someone to be saved. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the hearts of men, who draws them to Christ, as Jesus says here in John 12.32. Then every man must exercise his will in accepting Christ's sacrifice. These things are not your responsibility. It's not your responsibility to manipulate men or to convince men. But God has left you upon this earth to find those in need and to tell them. You've been bitten. You've been bitten by the fiery serpent of sin. It will kill you. You cannot save yourself. But if you will but turn to the cross of Jesus Christ, He can save you. And let me tell you why I know that. Because He has saved me. Say, Pastor, I don't know how to do it. If you've been saved, then you know what it takes. You can give your testimony at the very least. Tell people what what you experienced. Tell people what Christ has done for you. And for all the men and women who don't believe you or aren't interested, you know, you're going to walk through this life and for all the people that you tell that they're on their way to hell, that they've been bit, most of them are going to say, I haven't been bitten by anything. I'm okay. Or most of them are going to say, yeah, I know I've been bit, but I've I've got a plan. I've got a solution in place and I'm sure God's going to be fine with it. I'm I'm sure of it. And if it's not, John 3.16, it's not going to work. Maybe. Just maybe. For all of those who don't believe you, for all of those that aren't interested in the warning, for all of those that think they can save themselves, maybe, just maybe, there is one man or one woman who is just waiting for God to send someone to show them where to look for salvation. Maybe, just maybe, the only thing standing between you and your neighbor's salvation through Christ is you showing them that they have been bitten and showing them, pointing to the cross and saying, look there and you can be saved. Are you willing to tell them when the opportunities arise? Are you asking God to open doors, opportunities to point others to the cross of Christ? Or are you just walking by people on your left, people on your right, on the ground, dying of the death sting of the fiery serpent of sin? And you say, wow, I'm glad I'm not one of them. 
going to move you off the path a little bit. You're kind of in my way here. Thanks. Now, now I can move on. Just cry, look. Look there. That, that's what I did. I looked at the serpent. It works. I can testify it works. God said it works and I know it works. Look to the serpent. Look, look to Christ. And live. Finally, I speak to anyone today who may never have accepted Christ as their Savior, who has never been born again, who has never looked to the cross in faith. You've heard the problem today. You have been bitterly bitten by the death sting of sin and there is nothing that you can do about it. But God sent His Son Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. If you will but turn your eyes and look to the cross of Christ in humble recognition that Christ alone can save you from the power of your sin, you will be saved. If you will cry out to God even right there in your seats and tell Him that you know that you're a sinner, that you know you cannot save yourself, that you are looking to Christ, that you are accepting the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave on the cross of Calvary for your sin. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be born again. And if you've made that decision today, you have been born again. Made a new creation in Christ. Saved from the power of sin. Saved from the penalty of sin. And one day even, praise God, saved from the very presence of sin. Now in the shadow of next week's great celebration of Jesus' victory over death and hell, the, the celebration of the day when Jesus Christ was established as being the victor, the day that reminds us that one day indeed death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire and death will be a thing of the past. Let us take time this week to consider Jesus Christ's death. The death that put Jesus in that tomb. See, because that death was not for His own sake. That death was for your sake. Let us praise God for such love and such mercy that would send His only begotten Son to the cross to suffer such a death that we might live through Him. Let's pray together.